Hi, I'm Jay Abraham. By day, I grow businesses for a living. But today, we're going to talk about a lot of things, the meaning of life, uh, hopes, dreams, the human condition, and things that go bump in the night. And I think it'll be very, very intriguing and stimulating. Welcome back to this episode of Curiosity Bites. I'm your host, Dove Barron. And uh, our guest on this particular episode is often referred to as a marketing genius of our time. Jay Abraham has significantly increased the bottom line of over 10,000 clients in over 1,000 industries worldwide. And he has, he has really been on every possible stage you can think of. He has guided some of the people that you think of as mentors like Tony Robbins and others, um, every, every industry you can think of. However, we've been exploring the humanity of who, we, who he is. We've explored the, the background of who he is, so the power of vulnerability. We've talked about real problems versus real solutions. And um, how we let, it's important to let people come to their own answers, but oftentimes they don't come to those answers until there's a point of pain. I want to go back a little bit further because, you know, there's this, I think that one of the great problems in the way that we see the world is we see people as, you know, they were there and now they're here and now they're here, they're untouchable for us. And that's not the truth of human beings. There's a journey and that journey is constant and ever evolving. And there is many twists and turns in the process of that. So let's go back to the beginning. I know you and I were talking previously about humble beginnings. Tell us a little bit about where you were born, what your childhood was like, what that was, those kind of places. Pardon me. So uh, my origin, I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, Midwest. Uh, my parents were very loving. Uh, my father was a salesperson, not terribly uh, prosperous. We lived in a very, very, very humble home, but it was uh, a neighborhood of other people humble. We didn't really, I didn't know it because <laughs> I didn't know relevant. Uh, uh, let's see, I did not go to college. I got married the first time when I was 18 and I had two kids at 20 and the need of somebody 40 in the world didn't care, which it shouldn't have. It was my burden. And uh, nobody gave me a great job, but a lot of entrepreneurs gave me the chance to sort of eat what you kill. And so I, I learned very quickly what worked and what didn't. And also what worked better than other things, which was a denominator of, of the future life. Because I wasn't getting a salary, I, had no problem doing multiple things concurrently because it was all performance-based. And this was a really profound uh, convergence in what denominated my, my, my professional life. I realized after about 10 industries, not jobs, Dove, that people in one industry don't have a clue how people in another industry think or mm. they don't have an, understand anything strategy, marketing, business model, value creation, access vehicles, monetization, anything. And I was able, 
uh, after about 10 of them to, to start borrowing success approaches from one or two other industries I had been into before, combining them into hybrids and then applying them to industries I was in now where everybody basically followed the herd. And that was the start, frankly, of my career and everything exploded and they thought I was great, but I was really, frankly, nothing more than the one-eyed man in the land of the blind. <laughs> that's, and that started the whole process. And then it evolved from there. I mean, the, the most wonderful thing I ever did, which probably, I mean, I would fire myself if my, if my criteria was wealth creation, but I'm thrilled because my criteria was was experiential knowledge and expanse, and I've been very richly rewarded in that. But I had a hopeless curiosity, so I wanted to learn everything I could about everything I could. So I would jump from one industry to the other, and I would, I would, and and that was a, a an explosive sort of a springboard to what eventually sort of became me. But I've gone through, you know, I've had wonderful experiences and wonderful setbacks. Uh, you know, I was the, one of the founding strategists for the product Icy Hot. I was one of the founding strategists for Entrepreneur Magazine when it first started. Nobody even knew what the word entrepreneur meant. We had to send out mailing pieces before the internet that had Webster's dictionaries, not just definition, but the phonetic pronunciation because nobody ever heard the word. Uh, I was involved in the uh, the investment newsletter business when it first started. Uh, you know what, uh, if you know what Agora is, the founder of Agora had one little newsletter that we helped uh, him, him uh, market when he was young. I got involved with, I mean, just lots of fun things that sort of, uh, you know, uh, ended up being my life. But I'll tell you some of the stupid things. So when I first came to stature, I had enormous stature before the internet. And I'll show you how astute I am though. Uh, uh, the, peop the first people with snowboards came to me for their help and they wanted to give me equity. And I thought that was stupid. Pharma <laughs> came to me and they were the first ones with, with, uh, with dental implants and I thought that was dumb. A guy came to me wanting me to get involved with uh, prepaid uh, gift cards and I thought that was really stupid. So, I mean, I'm really a very bright guy here. <laughs> yeah, thank God we're not measured by the stupid shit we've done. <laughs> yeah, because there's a lot of that. I've got a couple of those in my pocket too. The Tony Robbins and the Damon Johns and the businesses, but I've had chances I've had more than my fair share of chance. You know, I had a chance to buy real estate uh, on, on the beach for a million dollars when I had $10 million in the bank. And I thought, eh, it's probably not going to appreciate. Now that it's worth 25 billion. So I would say that uh, you don't think of me as, as having this infinite, omnipotent scope of Midas touch. I don't. So let's go back, though, because you said you got married at 18 and you had two kids. Yes. I can relate to that. I got married very young. People think I'm a little bissel sugar at that time. I was definitely was crazy. Um, talk to us about getting married at 18, because uh, even in our 
generation that was still pretty young. Right. What talk to us about what pulled you into that? Because I know I got married because I wanted to be loved. Yeah, that's what I got married for. I got married to somebody who I knew loved me more than I loved her, and I was I was quite cognitive about that. It, you know, I was aware enough, and I was married at sixteen. And I took my mom to court so I could get permission, and I won. The judge said, if you're the, the judge said, when I gave my evidence, the, the judge who had actually put my father in jail many years before, the judge said, um, you're the most, you're the smartest, most articulate 16 year old I've ever heard. And if you're stupid enough to get married, you have my permission. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't, I mean, anybody watching who happens to be 16 or 18, I wouldn't recommend it. No, definitely not. You know, and I'll give you a couple of the, of the, they're sad, but they were again. They were they were they forged your tensile strength. So uh, I thought you know wasn't going to go to college. I thought uh, you know first person you meet you know you're raptured with everything. Their physical sexuality, you know you don't realize that you have nothing in common in the beginning, and you better hope you don't grow apart too fast. Uh, and it was very difficult, and because I didn't realize how little my value was in the workforce. So I had to have at any time three jobs to be able to pay the rent. And just as just to help people realize that we didn't just, you know, take off that that setbacks are part of, of success. We got married at, at, at the um, at, we got married at the courthouse on the way home, we were in the middle of a three car collision didn't get physically injured, but I had to have a tow truck bring my bride and I, we were sitting in the tow truck to my parents where we spent our honeymoon in my bedroom because I had no money for an apartment. The first apartment we moved into, the day we moved in, we got one very bad used car to replace it. I took three buses to my job. And the day we moved into my first apartment, I got fired and I was too embarrassed. So I took the very low bus home because I was too humiliated to tell my wife that all the money that I put in that was all the money we had and I this was my last paycheck but I mean I, it, it, you know it, it's all those things you, you do get through them of course and, and you look back on them and and while they seemed you know horrible or tragic or you know monumental at the time but I mean when you look back, you, 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 you work through it. I mean, we do have an incredible capacity. And, and again, I don't think most people challenge themselves to draw upon all that is within them in many different facets, not just the resilience, but the compassion, empathy, you know, the, the discovery, the, you know, and, and I'm, and just, you aren't asking this, but I want to introduce a thought that's really important to me in case we don't. So I have a lot of distinctions that I come up with almost all the time. And somebody made a, uh, they, they, they made fun of me. They said, you're like an intellectual gigolo. You come up with all these cool distinctions. You have your intellectual way with it for uh, a while and then you throw it out and you forget about it totally and you, and you go on to another one. But my current one is really interesting. and I'd like to throw it out and let you play off of it. Okay. Fabulous. So it's an integration of a bunch of things. I think that every one of us is a human hedge fund. And I say that the following, 
you understand, or if you don't, let's talk about what a hedge fund is. It's an investment fund that takes capital and deploys it into one or many different investment classes based on a combination of risk and yield in order to try to outperform whatever that market is, right? Right. And if you look at a life, whether it's a business life or a personal life, and you say, okay, I am investing assets, time, opportunity, health, love, uh, security, fulfillment in this fund that I'm calling my life, my career. But most people don't have a clue what the risk or yield is. They might be investing 40% in something that's, you know, an 80% risk and a 3% yield and only 10% in something that's 2% risk and and 80% yield, they don't understand what kind of balanced portfolio they need, more importantly, since they don't even know the yield. And if you are a human hedge fund, which we should all be trying to hit what you would call alpha, which is above and beyond normality, right? Mm -hmm. You know what alpha looks like. So I'm really fascinated with that as it applies to life, not really just business because I don't think we realize that there's all these factors. And if our portfolio is lopsided on risk, uh, we could be in danger. And we don't even understand where we're putting our assets and our opportunity and our attention and our time. Just, so that's a concept that's on my mind right now. So that um, seems to be very deeply tied to the uh, understanding of relational capital and social capital and uh, that we have a relational capital and that is the capital we have accumulated in the relationships we have and the social capital is in where those go to and uh, very often in relationships we are far from conscious about that and so what we do is we often invest relationally in things that don't pay dividends, but actually deplete us. Um, emotional vampires might be a way, another way of putting that. Um, but the, the key to it, again, um, for me, this is my philosophy, is um, if the analogy I give all the time is this. If you think of somebody you've known for a period of time, let's say five years, okay. who is a dear, trusted, fiercely loyal friend, and you put that person on one side of you, and on the other side of you, you put an acquaintance you've known for about the same amount of time. What is the distinction between those two people? It's not time. So what is it? And the answer is reciprocal vulnerability. Oh, I love that. That's really profound. I love that. It's reciprocal vulnerability. So the willingness to share and be open has determined the level of trust and vulnerability you have. You have, but... This is where everybody makes a mistake around vulnerability, particularly for people of our age, because we believed vulnerability is weakness. And so what we say is, oh, I can't be vulnerable because in our heads, the opposite of that is the opposite of being guarded is to emotionally vomit on people. No, 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 that's not emotional. Uh, that's not uh, vulnerability. That's emotional vomit. So it's discernment with reciprocity. So I will give you a little bit, you give me a little bit, I give you a little, it's a dance. 
And through that, we build a deeper intimacy because that's what we're actually looking for is the intimacy of our souls, the interconnectiveness of our souls, the, 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 the love making of our souls that come together and lift us both up to a higher realm so that we can have a greater impact in the world. That is the relational investment that comes from, as you say, being in a human hedge fund of who we are. That's really beautifully stated. I love that. And I think you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. It's fascinating because uh, it is reciprocal vulnerability. And, and that is so interesting. But I do think that, that we're, we're so afraid to reveal ourselves to others. Absolutely. And, and in, our, in our business world, we think that that's weakness. And, and I mean, it, and it may be, but I think in, in, the, in the totality of a life, it's strength. I really do, because it's authenticity. Mm -hmm. We do, I mean, here's, here's what's interesting. Anything we do in our life that's inauthentic, it, it consumes us sort of, I mean, it, it, you, can't, you can't fake it without it, it draw, I mean, you need fuel to fake it and the fuel draws itself out of your being, if that makes sense. Perfect sense. Yeah. I, again, if I may throw another dove quote at you, I apologize. If I may throw another dove quote at you, that we are all desperate to be seen, but terrified of being revealed. I love that. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll layer another one of mine, and it's a mm -hmm. little scared little children trying to fake it through life mm -hmm. and, and we're all we all desperately want to be led but we only want to be led by somebody we believe has our best interest in hearts and won't compromise us and that's really uh it, it that's where it breaks down because we're so afraid of uh of revealing or vulnerability yep really lessens really the richness of experience you can have in your life. Absolutely. And that's why I was asking you about your childhood. That's why I was asking you about that time, because as you said, I, I honestly believe we are all children walking around in, in adult bodies. And most of us have not bothered to examine the childhood beliefs uh, and the, the ideas that we have. We've just grown them up so they look different. We tell ourselves because they're disguised, but it's the same same crap you believed when you were a kid. You've not examined it. So that's what I was looking at when, when we looked at your childhood. I was like, so, you know, what formed you? Because there's no such thing as a perfect parent. You know that you're a parent. I'm a parent. And I know my parents were far from perfect. Um, but I also know I can take from that the good stuff and, and I can... I can form it into the foundation of who I am, but I know before I form it, it's already formed me. It, it, is, it is a quantum experiment with our own psychology and with the universe. Uh, we live in an interactive universe where we are impacting the universe and the universe is impacting us. And so our parents are impacting us and we're impacting them. And those belief systems become so deeply embedded that we disguise them, but it's still the essence of who we are. And so that's why I'm saying when you go back to your childhood, what do you find there? That's interesting. So uh, I think I was driven by a couple of things and I'm, I'm uh, reflecting, this may be very cathartic for me, thank you. 
So my father was a really good man. If he found a dollar on, on the steps, he would go knock on doors to see who, who uh, did it. But he was, he was not very successful and he had some setbacks. And I remember at about age, he, he sold paper products when drugstores and drive-in uh, restaurants were popular, uh, the straws and, and, yeah. and at about, uh, and, he, and it started to be a dying industry. At about age 50, he started a new job and he sold liquor. And he wasn't an alcoholic, but he sold liquor products. And he built from scratch. They didn't give him anything. And the guy watched him. He built from scratch a, a territory and he made a living, not a great living, probably never made more than the equivalent of $25,000. But I watched his, before discrimination was a big issue, he, a new company bought his company and they fired all these people at 60 and 63. And we had a really horrible, and I'll tell a story that really defined me. Uh, my parents, I left at 18 and they over, over uh, uh, indulged my younger brother and they bought him hot cars and things. And my younger brother got into a horrible time where he literally, literally, they were racing and they hit a little boy and killed him. And my father, everything he had to keep the, the kid out of jail and it broke him and they had to move because they were threatened where they were and I watched that and it really empathized me and I wanted to have more control over my destiny but I also wanted to be a great parent and and it just sort of it, part of me didn't I didn't want to be controlled by anyone I felt like the system would I mean because I saw it really devastate my father and I think it motivated me to want to be more true to myself and have control of my destiny. I saw great pain and suffering devastate uh, someone and I thought that was just tragic, but I saw how tentative life was. And I think in my mind's eye, it gave me the motivation to really go for what I wanted. And uh, I never, you know, I for whatever reason, I never, you know, I, I had very great setbacks, but it never defeated me, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I always thought, okay, you know, I'm being challenged. And I, I learned something, something very interesting happened to me when I lost one of the jobs and I lost two or three jobs. I was, I'm not probably employable. At first I was, you know, you talk about crying. I remember crying when nobody was home on the floor and just thinking, why me? And then I realized, the world doesn't care. It doesn't care if you give up and you're down for the count. It doesn't care if you come back, you know, with the resiliency and you and you expand like a exploding tightly coiled industrial spring to the heights of and the strata. Doesn't care. And when it doesn't care, that's liberating if you don't need the world to judge you. If you can just judge yourself. And mm. Yeah, absolutely. It does. So, you know, when the way that you just described your dad and what he did, what would you say was the greatest lesson you got from having the dad you had? And that may have been positive or negative, and it may be both. Because um, I, I think a, a lot of our greatest lessons are obvious, uh, often delivered in the negative. 
he was just a really good human being. Mm-hmm. He didn't as- aspire to very much. You know, he had a, uh, remember he had a Buick and a Buick was a cool car and he was very proud of that. And he loved, he loved three things. He loved shoes and he would polish his shoes every Sunday, all of them, he had tons of them. And he loved cameras and he had all these German cameras and he took pictures and he had great love of those two and he also liked to we had a very we lived in a just a very i mean today it would probably be uh you know sub you know subsidized housing i didn't know that but he loved pulling weeds he would come home and his joy was to keep his little yard beautiful and it was just very there was just some very some very charming elements of his he was very down to earth very foundational human being and he would never hurt anybody he would never take advantage of everybody he would give money he didn't have to people and he would he was just he was just a like a salt of the earth but a quality guy who was you know and I watched you know and later in his life he got crushed by events that I shared and that just mm-hmm. tore apart and I thought too I don't want to crush I don't want to be crushed but I want to make sure I don't crush others that I want to make sure that I try to help people have the resiliency and the tensile strength and the and 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 and, and uh, sort of uh, formulate and 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 uh, and and correlate in their mind what's really important and what isn't, and never let a system break them, so to speak. Yeah. What about your mom? My mom was a very interesting woman, very loving woman, but she was probably, and you know, she's long, long deceased, very wonderful mother, but she was the kind of person that needed a lot of acknowledgement. And um, so she was very active and everything, but she needed very badly probably to be uh, acknowledged. And it was a little bit, uh, it was a little bit, uh, not claustrophobic, but I mean, she just needed to, you know, she was, needed to be in the head of every committee and she needed to be the head of the, of the school plays and this and that. And it was a lot of work because she needed acknowledgement. And as I had a lot of kids, she required them to be so sort of acknowledging of her that it was almost a turn off too much, if that makes sense. But so you needed adoration. And she, yeah. And and I realized I didn't want to impose on my kids that kind of of, of neediness, but she was wonderful. Very good woman, very loving woman, uh, very creative woman, and a very good woman, very contributing in her community. And uh, I also say something that was very interesting, and this you didn't ask me this. My father, in his forced retirement years, uh, he he worked in, as as a lot of older people do. They worked the crossword puzzles to keep their mind, mm-hmm. and he loved it. And and this is very this is going to sound a little macabre, but when he died, they found him in his little. He had a little nook. They found him with the pencil and the crossword puzzle <laughs> dead at the table. And I always. Really? great way to die if i'm going to die i ought to die like that doing something that i love yeah 
it, you know, as simple as it might be to somebody looking in, if it was something he loved, then it's beautiful. It's profound. But anyhow, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of influences in my life that probably caused, you know, and I, you know, I don't know that we reflect on those as, you know, I, I've always reflected on the business elements, but probably not as much on, uh, you know, on the, the younger life. Sure. But yeah, I mean, uh, I think, you know, I was, I was uh, born Jewish. I got bar mitzvah. I, uh, you know, I went to, you know, every Sunday we, or Saturday, excuse me, we'd go to the synagogue. And, uh, and my parents were, you know, they were reasoned about, we didn't have separate plates for, right. you know, for dairy and, and meat, but it was good. And, and uh, you know, I, I think that the heritage, you know, there, there's a lot of good in any kind of heritage. I'm not knocking. Yeah, absolutely. But I think having a quality heritage, I think the one thing that I did learn from my father, he loved everybody. Everybody, he, he was just a good man to everybody. And he had, when he was in the liquor business, he had passion for somebody who wanted to buy a case of, you know, whatever. When he was in the in the paper business, he would get excited if somebody wanted to buy two boxes of straws. And I thought that was really great to have such a joy for what you did and who you did it for. Mm. It just was sort of interesting. And I'm sure all those things, I mean, if you ask me this again in, a week or two, and I spent some quality time sort of reconstructing and retrospectively thinking, I probably have better answers for you and your audience. It sounds like your dad had a, 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 a real passion for serving, that whoever yeah. he was interacting, rather than uh, accumulating, he was for serving, and, and he enjoyed that interaction. Um, but it also sounds like your mother needed to be served. Uh, at an egoic level so it's it's kind of a fascinating so if i may i want to ask you a deeper question and you right. can say no what did you need as a kid so it's a question i ask people all the time because it's it's rarely answered because the question is what did you need as a child that you couldn't get or couldn't get enough of so you might have got it but maybe not very much what did you need that you couldn't get or couldn't get enough of well, I'll tell you one other thing, because this probably tracks to. Yeah. So my mother was very loving, but they didn't have much money. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, and this is not putting her down. She did the very best she could with literally what they had. But every year in August, before school would start, there was our major department store. There were independent department stores back then. It would be the equivalent of what a a Nordstrom's would be today and they would have a sale and they would be selling all the sort of the crappy clothes that didn't sell for three years. Sure. Mom would go there to buy me my clothes. So I always would go to school knowing and sensitive that I had really, I don't want to call them ugly, but let's say out of, out of uh, <clears throat> context clothes. And sure. that bothered me. And I think one of my drives was because I'll never forget the first year, I think I was 16 and I worked so I could buy myself great clothes and I bought the greatest clothes in the world. And I was always obsessed with things. When I was younger, I wanted to do weightlifting and, and this was pretty funny. So I went out and bought 
the cheapest, because I had no money, the cheapest set of bars, 110 pounds set, which was what they would sell for 30 bucks. But then I kept buying more weights. And at one time I had 250 pounds on this silly bar and I was doing it in my bedroom and I tripped and fell into the wall and knocked the whole wall out. My parents just were crushed because they didn't have money to repair it. And they were just so angry at me. But I think I wanted probably, I was driven probably part like my mom to achieve, part probably watching and sensing they didn't really have a lot. Uh, and also one other thing, and this is hilariously, I mean, you're getting into the depth of my, what drove me. So I wanted, I never was athletically very, uh, very comfortable, but I wanted to be part of the, mm -hmm. so I became one of the student managers of the varsity basketball team. And I was the younger one. I got stuck with taking the jock straps and the sweaty shirts. And I remember that I worked my ass off. And I didn't get, you either would get uh, a, a Letterman sweater for doing that, or you would get a pin. And I just got the pin. And I was so not resentful, but hurt by that. So you probably are, you know, you probably want acknowledgement, I would imagine. And you want achievement. And you don't want the system to control you. And you want uh, in, in the beginning, you manifest that in things that you want. I remember that, this is hilarious. Uh, I dreamed of owning an, an Austin Healy 3000. I don't know if you know what that was. I do, of course I know what an Austin Healy is, yeah. And because and, all I could do, I bought, I had enough money to buy a- Convertible too. Yeah. A really low in convertible. I could, I, somebody had one, one of my, I could only afford a 56 Chevy that was rusted out in Indianapolis where they have salt uh, when they put down when it snowed. All the rocker panels and all the floors are old cars. And I could only afford one that was so malfunctional that it didn't even have brakes. It really didn't. It had like metal on metal and I couldn't afford it. And you reminded me of funny things. And I had to I had to really be very proactive and start stopping early because it was metal on metal and I couldn't afford it. And I'll remember one other thing, and this is funny, you're bringing back um, random bursts of history. When I was married uh, early, but when we were into our apartment, I bought I was into stature, so I bought a a Chevelle super sport convertible but i would always go to the you know the buy here pay here lots because they had no money and they would always have the cosmetically great looking cars that were just totally a mechanical mess and the one i bought had a perpetual hole in the radiator that i couldn't afford to fix <laughs> my dad would always give me liquor samples and i didn't drink back then and so every time it would leak i because i couldn't afford to fix the core i would go and buy a bottle of oregano and put a couple of quarts of, of liquor in the uh, radiator so it would swell and fill it up for a while. It smelled like somebody had vomited after eating pizza. <laughs> <laughs> That's but fantastic. Pretty eventful in funny way. They're funny now. They probably yeah. didn't be funny then, but they're funny now, nostalgically sort of thinking back. But I'm sure all those you know, all those are, are derivatives of motives and they also 
you know, they define or they forge who, what you are. And then the key is, is what you are at certain points in your life, what you end up being. Do you evolve or grow or shift or you, do you say static and sedentary? I don't know. Well, you know, again, we're going to come towards the end of this section, but I think you brought up a very good point, which is that, you know, I, I, I like to say that you're either defined or refined by your history. A and unfortunately, most people are defined and they just embed. And so where I was born, um, I don't know too many people who got out. I was born in a ghetto in Northern England. I was the only Jew in a school that was completely secular until I went to high school. And then in high school, I was the goy because I didn't look Jewish. So I got picked on by all the Jewish kids who were coming to school in Rolls Royces and Jaguars and, you know, and I was walking, you know, several miles to school in shoes that leaked, wearing bread bags in my, uh, between my socks and my shoes to keep the water out. The, you know, that, that, that need to, to fit in is a very human thing. But oftentimes we trade our souls for that. So we trade our authenticity for approval. We, we, we accumulate in hopes of being approved of, and then we end up sort of soulless in the process of it. And I think that, you know, it's interesting for me because if I look at it from, from my skills, you know, you've got this part of you that's your mom that needed the accolades and needed the recognition. And that put you on every stage in the world and made you the big, the big, the big you know, the big macha right? You were the big macher, you were the big guy, and people paid attention to you, and do, and rightly so. But at the same time, your father's philosophy is there, which is now emerged in later part of life, which is to say, treat people with dignity, see the goodness in everybody. Let, you know, so it's interesting to me that your mom's fuel got you off, and yep. got you fired up and got you moving and your dad's is now coming into your later life and softening you and, and allowing you to be in that place of dignity. It's a very interesting journey. Thank yep. you for sharing that with us, Jay. Thanks for drawing it out. I haven't really reflected on it. You did me a, 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 a great service. I appreciate it. Thank you. And for you, dear listener, we will be back in the next click. So stay curious, my friends, stay curious as we come into our final part of this delicious episode of Curiosity Bites with the world famous and very immense Jay Abraham.